I have always been against kind of patriotism and this kind of monarchy flag and army kind of notion of what it means to love your country. So I was kind of against patriotism, but I actually realise now that I really love these lands and I really love the nature in these lands and I'm deeply connected to these lands and to the people and nature that inhabit them. That is patriotism. You know, I, I, I love my country. I don't, I don't necessarily love my government or the state that currently administers this, this place, but I love this country. I love these lands. I love its rivers. I love its nature. And I love the people I get to share these islands with. And if we can make that idea and make it open and welcoming, so it's not about whether you were born here, it's not about your bloodline, it's about do you connect with this place? Do you also love this place? Turning indigeneity from a, a noun into a verb, I guess. This is an Ocean Mike episode of the Spaceship Earth podcast in collaboration with Finisterre. The story of Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system called Nature, which keeps everything replenished as long as we all respect it and participate wisely. So a deep relationship with this mysterious system, along with spontaneous cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with folk involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, writers, activists, designers, adventurers, healers, farmers, creative mavericks and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of life-sustaining cultures. In service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Greetings Earthling, uh, this is Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in, means a lot as ever. Um, this is a very special episode. This is the first episode in a new collaboration between the Spaceship Earth podcast and Finisterre. Now, some of you may know Finisterre. Uh, they are a, I'd call them a pioneering UK-based outdoor clothing brand with a deep reverence for the ocean and wild waters based in Cornwall in the southwest of England. Now, they were founded... 20 years ago by the incredible human Tom Kay and I've been a huge fan for much of that journey. Various bits of Finisterre kit are mainstays in my wardrobe when I head out to the coast to surf on the walks I take in the landscapes around Bath and as I go about my day to day. Um, Finisterre I believe are a rare blend of thoughtful product design, sturdy kit, technical materials, built to last, repairable uh, and made with a real consideration for life. They're a brand with a deep purpose and desire to protect and regenerate life and they actively seek to build communities and bring people together and they continue to ask 
and work with the difficult questions that businesses and all of us are being invited to face into. Over the last few years, uh, I've collaborated with Finisterre on a number of ocean and water related creative activism projects, uh, including the launch of ocean activism platform C7 and the Ocean Mike project, which we've uh, toured the UK with, as well as taking to COP26 in Glasgow. So how's this going to work? Well, for this year, every roughly every fourth episode, we'll have a kind of wild water, rivers and ocean related guest and theme. And that will make it an Ocean Mike episode. Because, of course, all wild waters and rivers eventually lead to the ocean. And, of course, the ocean is the life support system on Spaceship Earth, the great big blue beating heart of our planet. Over 50% of the oxygen we all breathe is generated at sea. Every second breath you take is down to the mysterious and generous intelligence of life in the ocean. Even when you're sitting waiting for a bus in zone four. How rad is that? So in this inaugural episode and sticking with zone four in the city, uh, I'm in conversation with Paul Powsland. Paul is a civil barrister, environmental activist and storyteller. He is a guardian of the river roading in East London, pretty much single-handedly bringing life back to a part of the river and growing a community of crew, reconnecting to the river and exploring what the legal rights of a river might look like. Because Paul is shaking up what it means to be a lawyer in a time of ecological and climate crisis. And I believe he's in some ways inviting all professions to consider what it means to be of a profession in a time of climate and ecological crisis. After practising as a barrister in London for about a decade, Paul realised the urgent need to create greater respect and protection for the natural world within our legal systems. He founded Lawyers for Nature to represent the natural world and all who are seeking to defend her. He writes and speaks on legal rights for the natural world as well as representing the natural world in the courts as best he can within the current legal framework with a strong emphasis on rivers and trees. He has a deep affinity for wild water. He lives on a boat on a stretch of tidal river and he's founded community project the River Roading Trust to bring life back to the river roading in East London. So I spent the afternoon walking along the river roading with Paul before we sat down and recorded this episode, which weaves many, many threads, including what it means to be a lawyer in a time of environmental crisis and how the legal systems are holding back so much vital and urgent work for protecting and regenerating the natural world. The importance of reconnecting with nature, our more than human family, and working on the ground alongside any systemic or policy change work that you might be doing, this kind of dance between the micro and the macro. And then this beautiful inquiry into making rivers sacred again and giving them rights. Paul, I believe, is an extraordinary human. He's like an all-round kind of turbo crew member on Spaceship Earth. So... Let's cut to this this episode. This is the Spaceship Earth podcast, Ocean Mike edition, in collaboration with Finisterre. Enjoy. 
You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Burgess. Paul, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to have you down here on the River Roading. I know. It's like, um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've done a river episode. Not at all. No, I'm not sure. Not like in situ. Um, basically almost in the river (laughs) as close as you can get to being in the river without getting wet (laughs) exactly and um and uh yeah i mean i think you know i was thinking um to kick off maybe you could give us a bit of context on the river roading well the river roading has been flowing here for tens of thousands of years so before humans even came to these islands um and it starts at a small spring in a place called Mole Hill Green, which is near Stansted Airport. And it flows for about 35, 40 miles to meet the Thames embarking. Uh, it's the third biggest river in London, after the Thames and the Lee, um, but probably one of the most forgotten rivers. And I live on it on the tidal section here in Barking, where the level changes by about two metres uh, at the highest and lowest tides, so it's quite, still quite tidal here. And how I came to be here slightly long story I'll abbreviate it we've got time (laughs) Um, I have lived on a boat for 11 years now mainly attracted on initially um, by not wanting to rent and then by being that connected to water and nature I sort of fell in love with nature and wanted to begin a deeper connection I guess with a specific part with a specific river and also before I was having to move around every two weeks I didn't have a mooring and that's actually quite stressful. I did it for five years, but after a while, moving every two weeks for five years is quite hard. Um, but normally to get a mooring costs thousands of pounds. So I began looking at maps of rivers in London to find rivers that weren't being looked after or had no one kind of on them. And the roading really struck out as being kind of the most obvious candidate Um it's big enough to get boats up as you can see there's my my boat there Mm. but it had no one it's got no river authority in charge of it as such and was really unloved and no one had ever lived here before but it seemed ripe to begin that that chapter in its life i guess yeah and i get i'm guessing once upon a time people lots of people would have lived well i should also caveat that so people lived on barking creek where there's some big dutch barges further downstream um but on the river itself no one's ever really lived here because um it's had a lot of industrial traffic um but it's never really been a kind of liveaboard river um all of the things along it were mainly um very heavy industry so across there would have been the Thames plywood manufacturers. There's a giant chemical works slightly further upstream. That there was the one of the world's biggest asbestos factories up to wow. the 1970s. There was paints and matchsticks and cars and um, all different kinds of heavy industry, which largely stopped in the 60s or 70s. And, would, and you talk about the, the river traffic, would that be from the Thames? Is it be sort of, yeah. yeah, so it's actually, um, in some ways it's quite a good river to access from the Thames because actually it's the it's the first river on the north bank that you can actually go up out of the Thames it's navigable all the others are too small um so that's why it actually had the UK's largest fishing fleet in the 19th century oh, right. because they would land the fish in the North Sea and this was the closest place to bring them into London huh. take them in on with that before trains arrived um and 
yeah, and then you'd bring in barges. So they bring in barges with raw asbestos on massive barges here, moor it up on that concrete wall you see there, take it in, and then the finished asbestos would go out by boat. Wow. Huh. So the because I get a sense of rivers for you are, are, are kind of an important thing there's something you know you have you got a history with rivers I mean I know some of us are drawn to different types of landscapes aren't they or yeah I mean yes but I'm not entirely sure where that came from uh-huh. um, although I do now I've now I've come back to it in my adult life I do now recall that when I was a kid when my dad was playing football and I was supposed to be watching football I was never interested in it. I used to go off wandering by myself and I was always drawn to water, which actually as an eight-year-old was probably quite dangerous. (laughs) Looking back, (laughs) I just go off like wandering for miles by a river by myself um, and I was always drawn to water. Um, But then it was only really when I moved onto a boat that 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 probably early love was, came back to the surface again, I guess. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a lot going on here. I mean, you just walked me down from from Ilford and uh, you know I don't know how long the walk was it felt quite long with that rucksack on but <laughs> it's pretty about 20 minutes 25 minutes it could feel like a lifetime when you're that close to the North Circular yeah, yeah that's true <laughs> but there's so much um, there's so much that you're doing around here and we want to get we'll get into that um, but just tell us I mean first of all I want I thought we could just start a little bit because you've got some really interesting threads to, to your to your work and your life right I mean you're sort of you're sort of weaving um uh life as a civil barrister yeah um your kind of activism work which we'll get into as well and of course all of this you know what i would call deep sort of regeneration work that you're doing here on, mm. on the river in in the city as well which is a crucial distinction we may we may we may go into i think yeah well let, let, yeah so like just tell us a little bit because I, I and i guess i want i would love us to explore because a lot of you know when i look at you know, all of those elements are very alive for you. Your law work, <laughs> this work, obviously. Yeah. Um, but just, can you tell us just a little bit about that sort of legal pathway and then this kind of entanglement with, with nature, I guess? Yeah. How do I draw all these threads together? Mm. What's the, what, what, what were the seeds? Like, how did the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the, the ultimate reasoning is probably um, I have ADHD and that gives rise to a certain amount of magpieing of interest mm. just sort of taking anything that appears shiny and just running into it and seeing what happens um and i used to think that that was actually um unhelpful and there's the word dilettante which i think is seen as a negative where you have lots of different interests that you pick yeah. randomly yeah. <laughs> but actually but they call it they call it polymath as well don't they or something like that i think a, a, a polymath is, is a nicer way of saying it i think <laughs> dilettante is, is pejorative and, di- and polymath is, is the is the positive way of saying it um but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't be seasoned enough to describe myself as a polymath. But um, I, I used to think this kind of magpieing of interest was a bad thing, and actually, over time, I've realised that actually, I think it can be a good thing, and that increasingly, the things that I, the different parts of my life and activism, are all feeding one into the other and I'm finding increasingly when I talk about one area I use examples from another to illustrate it and weave them together Mm. I think as long as you have one overarching theme to it and that overarching theme to me is nature a connection to nature a love of nature and a deep desire to protect and restore it through the law through direct action through activism all these different ways um yeah so the the law thing, I'm, I'm not from, I'm originally, despite my 
very, I think, middle class sounding accent. I'm actually from a working class background and I was the first person in my family to go to uni. And I don't know where it came from because I went to a really rubbish comp uh, at school, but I just really wanted to become a barrister. I think because I like talking and people were like, you should be a barrister. <laughs> so I did. Um, so I studied hard um, and went to Cambridge and did law and wanted to become a barrister and make money, I guess. And then something changed and flipped. I'm not entirely sure what that was, but I wanted adventure. And so I began in the, the boat life. And then a number of different things happened that made me really fall in love with nature. And I think being so close to nature on a boat was a key part of that. Mm. Also getting involved in quite starting in the kind of hedonistic festival scene and that kind of gradually going over into the more kind of hippie spiritual festival scene which is about connection to nature a lot mm. of the time um, and also really getting into wild swimming I found out about Roger Deakin's book Waterlog when I was at uni because he went to the same college as me right great book exactly and that sort of set me on a wild swimming journey and, th and that was something I would then I would go on wild swimming trips two or three times a year just by bike or you know and camping and all of those things really led me to a deep love of nature which then I wanted to manifest in my legal work so I was an ordinary civil barrister for like five years and then I posted on a Facebook group for people who love trees about if there was a group for people to give their time for free for lawyers to give their time for free to help protect trees and there wasn't, which is kind of surprising. But then I was put in touch with the people in Sheffield who were trying to save their street trees. I remember that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all come out again this week because there's now been a report that basically said the council were wrong. Right. <laughs> which, of course, everyone knew all along, but wouldn't have saved the trees if the people hadn't. That's when they were the trying to, what was it they were trying to take down? 17,500 street trees, healthy street trees, because they were basically damaging the pavement slightly. Madness. Mm. Anyway, so I, got, I represented them and got into this, realising how little protection there was for nature in the law. And then since then, over the last, it's been six years now, I think, have been representing people trying to save trees and protect rivers um, in my legal work. And that led me to founding Lawyers for Nature, um, which campaigns to bring about the rights of nature and to protect nature in the UK legal system. And the roading, I guess, is a a bit of a random adjunct to that. I didn't ever intend it to be a kind of practical laboratory for making rivers sacred and giving them rights and practical restoration of them. But that's kind of what's happened. Talk, talk, talk with me about the this, this, this sacredness sort of thinking or feeling or... This whole kind of like because it's this whole you know law is for nature to say because there's a there's there's a much deeper you're you're working you know the, there's obviously the legal systems that you're working within but it feels like there's a much there's a much deeper um, pattern to your work where you're you know you're really looking under a lot of this stuff mm. beyond these kind of modern constructs if you like what's that can you tell us a bit about that because I I I'm fascinated and believe as well like this you know if we're to sort of start to bring life back we have to look towards the sacredness of beyond the human <laughs> but i just yeah. interesting because if i've seen you use this in, in in writing and stuff as well but just tell me a bit about that what that means to you yeah as part of my journey into nature connection um 
I've also been on a journey, I guess, from being a kind of hardcore Dawkins-esque atheist at university, which is something I think, sadly, a lot of uh, particularly men of that age slip into. <laughs> I think it's got a common path. But then heading much more to a, a pantheist worldview, I guess, um, of a belief in God or the divine is in all things, including nature, and that nature and the earth is in some sense sacred. Um, but that's been something I've not been discussing that much in the legal world because it's quite a um, taboo subject. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine it doesn't chime well with that. But, but the weird thing is, is all law, ultimately, when you dig down into it, is a spiritual or at least spiritual religious or quasi-spiritual religious question. But the mainstream, mainstream law has become so ossified in its rules they just don't really think about that anymore now when we think of well basic rules like not murdering someone or human rights or a lot of the rules that are encoded in in law at their base there's a there's a spiritual question there it's like why don't we want to kill other human beings it's because life is in some way sacred right um and that is for me something that we very much lost with nature and actually, in trying to get rights for nature, we do need to establish its sacredness again. Because ultimately, the question is: Well, what, why should we? Why should we care for nature? Why should nature have rights? Why shouldn't we just exploit and exploit and exploit nature? And the answer to me: We, we can give some answers on the way. We can say, well, it's good for humans that we don't pollute rivers. But the ultimate reason is that nature and the earth is sacred. I think, mm. and I think quite a lot of people are starting to realise that. I mean, you, you know, you think about the, you know, the river here and the rivers generally in this country as we've been, you know, more and more people are starting to understand over the recent times. But the way that they, the way that we, we treat them, I guess, and again, not some of it is not intentional from the everyday person, but the systems that we've built, ultimately, um, they depend on these systems. But that you say, that, I mean, it's it can be more, it couldn't be further from sacred in terms of like, how these places are being treated, right? As we walked mm. along, and um, and and you know, almost I say almost all. I don't know of any long-lasting indigenous societies or peoples that haven't, to some extent, regarded nature as sacred, yeah. and that is, in some ways, I, well, I think a, a crucial reason for their sustainability is yeah. they ultimately regard nature and the earth as sacred, and then. Um, bring that about and encode it in their rules as a society and if you don't have that then what you end up is is some of the stuff we saw today which is you know rubbish everywhere sewage everywhere um dead lifeless destroyed nature yeah and which which will of course ultimately destroy us as well because this river should be (laughs) the the key artery for hundreds of thousands of people that live along it and the, the only way that we can (laughs) <laughs> that we're dealing with this the terrible pollution that we've done here is that we you know we have systems like water treatment that kind of stuff which keeps us um from uh or allows us to have such polluted waters and not not be make ourselves ill from it but ultimately um we then have to rely on those systems because the natural world that we've created is so badly damaged and polluted yeah and it's um I mean the ri- the rivers of you know again when you talk about the arteries for the places and then you know, they're the arteries of the you know of our sort of 
our ocean, our great big sort of blue pumping heart of the of the earth are all you know all these things connect and um it's some because sometimes i guess it's i mean sometimes i find it so overwhelming when i see continues to see what's going on you know the the, the just the overload i think there was a i think there was a, there was something in the media this week again about the i think it was a un thing on plastics again in the ocean or something but it was talking again about the you know the far, the far, the speed we're trying to kind of clean these things up but the relentless flow now is just so it's so overwhelming um and so this question of like we how do we get to the root of these problems and how, are you seeing that in the in the legal work you're doing like because there's a lot of like how do we clear it how do we stop the stuff happening you know what i mean or how do we clear up things or how do we give rights to to trees and rivers but ultimately there's also like where is the damage coming from it's coming from i mean to use a pun so far upstream isn't it mm. so does that does is that starting to come into this work like how do we well yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm really interested in is the relationship between what I call micro and macro activism. And actually, I'm realising that a healthy activist diet usually includes parts of both. Um, for me, if you get too hung up on the, the kind of macro stuff, it can actually be very lead to burnout. It's quite overwhelming. And how do you change it? Yeah. And also, it can become quite heady because you're not you're, you're always talking in the abstract you're not actually illustrating it with specific examples but equally if you always work on a micro level like cleaning up this section of river you're forever going to be cleaning it up because you um you're not changing the ultimate policy that led to or yes. leads to that that destruction on the ground yeah so sp by cycling between the two you are not only, it's not only better for your mental health usually because you're changing something on the ground and trying to stop its long-term problems but also that i think it leads to more effective activism yeah so for instance i mean the rubbish on the river is a really great example of that so initially i came along and was like okay we'll just clear this and it'll be fine and we did and then a year later it was like as bad again and that has made me really realize the need for a fundamental change in the way we have our packaging systems in this country and the way we produce things and how we dispose of them mm. um and to start campaigning on that, but also using specific examples that actually makes it quite hard for people to disagree with you, even conservatives, right? Like if I say to people, if I just say, oh, the government is really bad, there's a packaging river, they go, yeah, yeah, whatever, hippie. I'm like, if I say, I'm here on the river, I'm giving up my time for free for these companies which are deliberately profiting out of putting that packaging into the environment they know is not going to get collected, why should they be allowed to do that? Why shouldn't they come and pick it up? And actually, I just took a picture of a coffee cup on the way when we're walking down. I'm going to tweet Costa, saying, "Hey, you going to unpick your coffee? You going to unpick this up, or do you want me to pick it up for you for free as your unpaid labourer? Is that is that what you want here, or you want to sit here forever? What's your plan?" And to really use those examples, because it's much harder to disagree with someone when they're doing the work than if they're just saying it in the abstract. Yeah. But equally, there's there's I think a problem with some litter picking groups in this country where they just constantly just pick it up, yeah. and they, they blame litter bugs angrily and not unjustifiably but they never seem to or rarely seem to direct their ire to the people who are really causing this at the, the head which is companies who are deliberately and profitably creating single-use packaging and it, and it kind of makes me think as well which we you were talking as we were walking down here but like you know you say like you know people littering and stuff and it's like 
I, I've often thought that part of that problem is, of course, it's the packaging, but there's also there's a lack of connection that people have to place, right? You know, we particularly in big cities, because as you said, you know, as we walk through that access to any kind of nature, but you know, natural environments is is almost impossible. Roads are cutting through everywhere. So without that connection, without that sense of belonging, um, it's almost, I guess what I'm saying is that there's all these different, like I think what you're saying, there's all these different parts to this problem, isn't there? Because there is the, there's the sort of, the sort of how industry has been built on these places. There's the, there's the kind of how the operating principles of what you're allowed to do with, as, as, a, as a business, you're allowed to pretty much pollute what you like, to be fair, uh, with not much, uh, with not much responsibility. You've got the legal structures and then you've got the sort of like, the lack of access or the lack of sense of belonging to these places mm. and all of it is a sort of it sort of mixes up doesn't it to sort mm. of like that that's why i feel there's and i guess is what you're saying you kind of need to be like part of the problem with cleaning the river is like and i think what you're exploring exploring with the with the trust is giving people access to the to the river mm. is because then you get a sense of belonging and connection and then you're much less likely i'm imagining to want to toss stuff on the ground or do you know what I mean? So mm. there's a sort of there's all these sort of parts to this puzzle, and often I feel that we're looking always in at least in the sort of the big sort of narrative, the public narrative it tends to be oh you know it's all the plastic problem or it's all of it, but actually it is all interconnected, isn't it's, it? It's definitely interconnected, and I'm involved in the Right to Roam campaign. The biggest critique of that is well, what about people throwing litter? Um, and to me, there's a kind of if I can call it a litter gap, I guess, <laughs> because there's always going to be a time between at the moment we are disconnected and it's the people are disconnected and therefore they're going to throw rubbish and we can't solve that without reconnecting them. Mm. But in the time that it takes to reconnect people, there's going to be littering. Yeah. And how we deal with that is a bit of a problem. And I'm I'm struggling down here because you know. I get really angry. I clean a place up and there's people who literally will sit on a bench that we've built for them and just lob cat. I mean, I'll show you around there. It's absolutely appalling. Just like dozens of cans in the river. I just cannot, cannot understand the mentality of that. And I try putting up signs to politely explain to people, but they're still disconnected. It's still to them just a random place that junk goes. Yeah. And I, I don't know quite how to bridge that gap in a society that is so disconnected from nature. And so... You know, to me, a, a good policy way of at least reducing that as much as possible would be a deposit return scheme, yeah. at least, you know, at the very least, or stopping producing that. Yeah. We, I, I don't know many other things where we we know the damage that something's going to do and we just let people continue producing it and then literally disclaiming any responsibility for it by just blaming the end user and going, well, these are litter bugs. And we don't like litter yeah. bugs, but we're not going to do anything systemically about the problem. As in single-use plastics. Yeah, or, yeah. or, or, or cans. Or any yeah, any kind of single-use yeah. packaging. Yeah. Like the producer must have a responsibility for either producing less or having a system where it's going to come back or there'd be a financial penalisation for it not coming back or actually picking it up. Like, I don't understand why I had to do this company's work for them going and picking up their cans that they produce knowing they would end up in the environment. And at the moment, they're also buying quite a lot of groups, being quite concerned by a lot of the more professional river charities that do... I went to a Plastic in Rivers day and almost the entire focus of the day was on how we can assist volunteer groups picking it up. Nothing on manufacturers and I found out the conference was sponsored by plastic manufacturers. Right. And of course, they, 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 they love pushing this narrative. We love helping local groups picking out some yeah. rivers, you know, kids with little litter, litter piggers picking out cans. It's like, as, as someone who does that with a lot of my time, I do it because I have to, because I will not sit here and allow my river to be so disgusting. But I don't like doing it. Yeah, sure. I don't feel like I should keep having to do it, you know? Yeah. 
We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast, Ocean Mike episode with Finisterre. Yes. So, so tell us about tell us about the trust. Tell us about how that has evolved, and particularly also just how I'm really interested, like the community here and the place and the people. And what's can you give us a sense of how people are being engaged in this and what you're learning through people starting to get involved? Yeah. So, and I guess the re- the reason I'm, I mean, is I've, re- I've again when we you know as you said you know you can look at the macro, micro, but like, it feels like you know places you know they are everything now right if we can if we can bring more people into places out of their places and you know connecting with each other and actually getting involved in participating in what this future might you know that we're all heading towards that just feels so important Mm. um as the macro policy stuff is ongoing but just tell us what that's been like with this place and this community uh, it's been it's been tough at points. Yeah. Um, this is you know barking is one of the harder places to engage people in green and community work. I would guess um, it's there's a lot of poverty here, a lot of people struggling to make ends meet, um, and it's been difficult. On the other hand, it is also it's starting to make a difference. Um, when I first came here, I had a vague idea that I would start a community of boaters, and it's sort of the usual mooring fees going to property developers or to the Canal and River Trust. It would go directly into the river. Um, that took a few years to get off the ground, um, but eventually, the River Roading Trust I set that up with a few other people, and that now leases the river from the Crown Estate, so the river's owned by the Queen because <laughs> it's tidal. The Queen owns all tidal waters. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, everything tidal? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So, so uh, How does so that law... What's the sacredness in that, 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 that bit of law? <laughs> well, it's just... It's been like that. So I think it's since William the Conqueror, they basically just said, these are ours. Um, we're going to keep them. To be fair, um, as someone who's not a massive fan of the monarchy, it's some, somewhat weird to say this, but the, the Crown and the State have actually been pretty good. Um, they... I would. This much better that it was owned by them than, say, a private developer or even someone like the Port London Authority or the or the Canal and River Trust. Um, they take a very long-term view of their property assets because they can, because they you know they've had it for a thousand years. They're going to have it for another thousand, and so they've been very supportive of the project um, and of the work the trust is doing. Um, so, and yeah, so. River Road Trust was set up and then started doing kind of volunteer cleaning days. And then over time, it's kind of snowballed, I guess. And the more that we've been able to show the work that we're doing, the more people have wanted to get involved in that. Um, on social media, it's really kind of taken off over the years. The Friends of the River Roading Facebook group was sort of me and about 20 mates when I set it up. And now there's two and a half thousand people there. And people I don't even know just post pictures of the river and say how much they love it. And um, this uh, most recent set of volunteer days we just had over the last five weeks has been our most intense. So we had one every weekend, which has been pretty exhausting. Mm. <laughs> um, this is our, our busiest time of year. It's that late winter is the perfect time. It's the time you can plant trees. Yeah. All the riverside vegetation is at its lowest. You can get in and get the rubbish out. And we've really smashed it. Yeah, well, I mean, you showed me a lot on the way down. I'm, yeah. I'm still quite sort of blown away I by the amount of work you're doing. Yeah, over the course of the last season, 
volunteers have probably taken out about 500 bags of rubbish all along the river, planted hundreds of trees. Um, we just pl- we just planted some willow, didn't we, on the way? Yeah, it was only two. <laughs> so it was good though. <laughs> two trees that will hopefully outlive us. You exactly. Know? God, I think about that. Um, yeah, and it's like single-use plastic. Sorry. It's um, it's generally been the case that yeah, when people see that, it then inspires them to want to come, and that's actually why I did a, uh, held a series of um, volunteer days this this winter because people see one and they're like, oh, when's the next one coming? And, uh, well, next weekend yeah. <laughs> and the weekend after that. Um, and people are also starting to want to do litter picks elsewhere on the river. So a few people have written in saying, can we do them further up in different places? And we're going to help them and support them to do that. And what, and what, you, what are you learning from the community? Are you finding that, you know, coming out, like you say, coming out to clean up, but then obviously there's all these sort of, interesting stuff that starts to happen when you've got people together and out in nature and are you sort of seeing how yeah these connections are starting to open up between people and nature as they're here yeah and i think we were talking earlier about the sacredness of the river and i also often talk about love towards the river Mm. i think the practical work is a real or is a really important way into that I think if I rocked up embarking and just started saying the river is sacred and we must love her, people are going to yeah, look at me probably, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell are you talking about? What's that pool guy again? I mean, they, some of them do still do that. <laughs> they, they do still think I'm a bit mad, I think. Um, but it generally gets a better reaction when you're also doing real practical work. Because people can't disagree with that, right? Yeah. Everyone loves trees. They don't want the litter in the river. And if they can see the practical difference that you're making on the ground, then the messaging around that love, respect and sacredness towards the river is much more easy to kind of bring across. And I think in the Facebook group, for instance, I've seen that kind of shift where this was just an unloved kind of nothingness to many people before. And now they're starting to see it as their river, which they, yeah, which they love and which they're proud of. And it's really starting to create that, that change in how the river is perceived. It's, it's, it, I, I find this fascinating because I say again, you know, through my sort of, you know, meandering over the years and sort of activism and change and whatever. And it's always what I see is experiential work is where the shifts happen. You know, it's not, you know, like you say, if it's intellectual all the time, it's abstract. It's when you get people, <clears throat> you know, connecting, doing something, connecting with the problem, but also with each other and obviously within with the natural world as well. That feels like where the shifts really start. Cause I don't know. Just, I think we're just you know we're beings aren't we and we start to kind of like we start to feel what this is about as well mm. as think about it but, but it's also really important to weave the two mm. i think there's a a slight issue with some of the direct restoration groups where it's a bit like you can feel a bit slave driving like go and pick this rubbish out sure. there's, there's no there's sure. no actual deeper connection there yeah. and one of the things we started doing this winter actually was having um slightly less litter picking or actually combining things so we do litter picking in the morning and then tree plant in the afternoon and have like homemade soup from our um, local resident Elaine who'd been supporting the project from the start and have a um, some drinks and a sauna in the evening you I know mean, that's that's it right you've just created that's the vibe you're, you're bringing yeah. all of that connection in. yeah exactly yeah. Um, and that's generally got a, a lot better I think people have enjoyed it more yeah. I, I've enjoyed it more too but I'm guessing as well like you know um so many of us are also you know lacking connection in our in our communities or lack of you know and like you say like if you're bringing people together and 
you, you can you know you can eat together which is always an amazing thing and mm. and it feels like that that is this kind of approach just feels like um you know with the amount of stuff we've got coming down the line it feels like this is this is where you know there's a there's a lot of lot of um I guess, yeah, a lot of regenerative potential possibility in, in this kind of approach. But like you and, say, it's messy and it's not easy. And, and also do it on people's doorsteps as well. I think one of the issues with a lot of nature restoration and connection, and dare I say the more spiritual connections to nature, is that it's often quite sequestered in very middle-class areas yeah. and in middle-class social circles. And people embarking are not going to go down to a nature connection day in Stroud or Totnes or any of the other, or, you know, Forest Row or the other yeah. kind of... Um, hippie honey pots that exist around the country. <laughs> this is this is right on their doorstep yeah, yeah. and also they get to then come and experience the place that they've helped to help to make nice yeah. you know there's these woodland trust planting days where you go out into a field in the middle of nowhere and plant a thousand saplings but yeah. a lot of time i've i've done that but i've never gone back to see them because they're quite far away yeah whereas here all these saplings that we planted the last five weeks all around here people can come and see them grow yeah. and experience them and enjoy them yeah no it's it's um and, ho- and hopefully watered them so I don't have to do all the watering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about, because when, when we were walking down, you were talking about where you've been trying to um, reconnect some um, some marsh, some wetland. Um, is that right? Some, yeah. Some, yeah. And, and you were talking a little bit about, um, I guess, the, you know, bringing this kind of, you know, the imaginative... Uh, <clears throat> realm into the mix because you were you were talking about a you were sort of going back in time you were talking about what these places you know what these these wetlands used to be before they were developed and then you were also talking about now how you'd been trying to reconnect and you were sort of bringing in this kind of I think you were talking about doing you'd been doing actually Phoebe had come down is that right and mm-hmm. done some stuff but can you talk a little bit about that imagining the imagination sort of element of this work because it feels again really particularly like you say with all the with all of the kind of you know the, the state of the places that we're finding ourselves in, in, in particularly in cities, the ability then to kind of imagine what could be feels really really key, but really unusual as well in a lot of this sort of work. Mm. Yeah, obviously, I think you and Amelia will be aware of shifting baseline syndrome. This idea that we get used to the denuded way that nature is and how how bad it is and we think that's that's how it should be and i think a key part of nature restoration is remembering what it used to be and then really imagining how it could be in in often a kind of slightly maybe crazy out there way but like really going for it and then, and trying to make those into a reality and so and that often has to be on a really small scale like it's taken me literally years of walking around this area to find all the little places that could be um, restored and to research the history of what they used to be like and imagine what they could be again. I know it's a podcast so people won't be able to see this but I've brought this map. This is an 1890s map I'll, um, I'll of the a, area. I'll take a picture and put it in the show notes. So ju- this is literally just before... Um, East Ham and Barking exploded at the end of the 19th century with just loads of housing once the railway came. So in about 20 or 30 years after this map, the whole thing was covered in housing pretty much. And it shows all of the marshes that used to be here and an old channel of the roading that used to flow off from a place just near here, called the, and it's called the Back River, and flowed all the way down past the town and back in. And so having that made me realise 
how much of the marshes was lost and how precious a habitat that is. We're in, the moorings is basically in a marshland and it's a really habit, it's a really nature rich habitat, a really special place. And it's now one of the rarest habitats in London because humans don't like marshes. Do you mind if I put you back on there? Yeah, just sorry. because of the mic, sorry. Humans, <laughs> humans don't like marshes. Humans don't like marshes? Yeah, because they're too, um, they're, they're neither one nor the other. Okay. We have a d- real desire to make things. We, it's, it's either land or it's water. Right. So we sheet pile it and this part is water and we dredge it so we can get all the way in. We don't like things that are kind of marshy and half mm, and half because we can't really use them for anything, right? What can we use a marsh for? Basically nothing. <laughs> hence, why it, hence why it hasn't been developed, right? You can't, you can't build anything in it yeah. and you can't, you can't navigate a boat into it. Yeah. So that's why these rivers in London are now all sheet piled. So all the old marshes are disconnected and filled in and drained and then the rivers are dredged. So you have these land, 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 metal sheet pile, water. And actually the marshes, as it turns out, were actually not only are now rare, they're some of the richest habitats we have because nature loves edges. Nature loves the messy. Nature loves the bits in between. Um, for instance, um, one of the reasons for the crash in North Sea fish populations is because the fish used to, the, the baby fish used to come into the estuary and go into the tidal marshes to eat. Because baby fish can't exist out in the middle of a sea. There's nothing for them to eat. There's no way to hide from predators. So all of these marshes would have been the, the, the nursery grounds for fish. And we, in the 19th century, we like destroyed most of them and drained them, little knowing that actually we were destroying huge amounts of fish population, etc. Um, so bringing back those little edge, edge parts is, feels really important. So finding out where they were on the map and then working out which ones are still there and then trying to find ways to restore them, bring them back into life. So for instance, further up, there's a golf course in Ilford. And I just looked at it, and I was like, the river, the river roading runs through it, but it's embanked to protect a golf course from flooding. Um, and there's a huge area of green right in the center of Ilford, one of the most nature and wild deprived parts of London with a very poor and, um, uh, yeah, very, very poor population that needs that access to wild space. And this golf course is owned by the council. And I just started thinking, maybe should just start suggesting to the council they just turn it into a wetlands. And I seeded the idea a few years ago and that keep coming back to it. And now we're having a, a meeting to actually maybe try and make it into an wow. actual plan. Amazing. And like, yeah, there's an area over there we walked past where there was a, a waste ground with just some brambles and loads of scrap metal. And over the weekend, we cleared it with volunteers, tons of scrap and metal and plastic and planted a couple of hundred wet trees, willow, alder, poplar, aspen, um, in there so it will become a wet forest hopefully in a few years time and the back river I was in a local plan meeting with the council and they were talking about wanting to reconnect East Ham to the roading but there's a giant motorway in the way and I sat there in the meeting being like I'm sure I've seen on that there's already a channel of the roading and I went back to the maps and saw the back river and and decided to go for a walk along it trespassing just jumping over fences climbing over barbed wire and realised that actually the entire route of the back river is still it's filled in so the river's completely gone it's a ghost river but it it still hasn't been built on so it could be redug huh. and brought back to life so i took all photos of it and then did a twitter thread which got you know went quite viral and people shared it and then at the bottom just said email the council and say you support the proposals to bring this back to life and apparently they had quite probably too many people doing <laughs> it they got a bit pissed off with the amount of people who emailed in they were like we, we get the message you want the back river back and hopefully that will go in the local plan and actually become a thing. Huh. And that, like, 
yeah deep connection to the to the place to know what what's there and how how the river works and how all these spaces work and that nod towards history about what used to be here and working out how things can be reconnected again and what fragments remain feels really important in an area like this because uh, yeah, as you're speaking it's just it's so interesting because it's such a it's such a live uh, dynamic sort of dance that you're doing here and how you're interacting with you know the systems that are, are in place and trying to kind of get under what what might have been and how what does nature wanting to do here and it's a, it's you know it's 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 not again it's almost like and now starting to see that you're you're almost creating these kind of sort of sounds like you're sort of sending these kind of pulses into the into the system to sort of say well look there's something here that we could be is that you know it's quite it's it's lovely because it's not it's um it's i guess it's a form of it's a beautiful form of activism because it is effectively trying to say you're trying to sort of bring this kind of improvement in mm. And uh, how how does that work with the council and staff and, and developers and what, what you know? How are you? I mean, g- generally councils are ostensibly supportive, but often that can be that support can ebb in the face of wanting development. Yeah. And one of the things we've done here is to put all these different fragments together in a broad vision. We're calling Roading Edgelands. Um, to say that actually these are not just like random scraps of wasteland, they're part of a whole vision of opening up and reconnecting spaces for people and nature throughout the Roding Valley. Because the problem is you get these kind of NIMBY debates where it's like, we want to save this bit of nature and the developers like, it's just a bit of waste ground. And actually, if you, they, they want to develop that whole field I showed you on the other side of the mm. North Circular. But if you just see it as a random field on the edge of East Ham, then that's quite hard to oppose that. But if you say, actually, this is not just a random field on the edge of East Ham, it's a valuable part of the roading marshes, one of the few fragments left that could be restored. Mm. And we can reconnect it back into the roading through here, here, here and here. And we can open it up to humans as well, here, here and here, and make the development that happens there better because it will have access to nature there. It's a much more sellable vision, I guess. Yeah. And similarly, you know, this this path we walk down here, if it's just like a random scrap of kind of brambles and rubbish, it's quite hard to sell as a place that local people want. We've cleared some of the brambles, not all, because we've left some of them for, for habitat, but we've cleared some of the brambles, planted up, so there's going to be every native tree along here. Cleared the rubbish, and it's we've turned what was a kind of bit of unused waste ground with rubbish in into a kind of linear park and local nature reserve yeah, out, and for free and with no, with no permission with no, you know it's <laughs> yeah, just there yeah. and now people can enjoy it yeah we we need more of that and you were saying wasn't it you, you said you 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 discovered that there were how many 40 odd uh native tree species in this country and you've planted them all well yeah so there's this is a I, i'm sort of uh positive impulsivity i guess i just <laughs> i was at my friend's new year and just reading a book about native forestry and found there's between 30 and 50 native trees depending on how you define native um like do you include elm and and sweet chestnut for instance um and just impulsively decided that actually we can just have all of them embarking along this one path so local kids can come and see all the native trees in one place and i literally went on online there and then and spent 300 pounds of the trust money buying all these trees within about an hour of discovering this they got delivered and uh, the volunteers planted most of them last weekend and this weekend just gone and then i finished off the last 20 yesterday so they're all in now i know i think think you showed me most of them on the way yeah exactly and when, when they come out i'll be able to you identify them from their leaves and as I say it's, there's not many places in London where you can see all of the native trees and 
yeah, calling it the Barking Arboretum to give it a fan- give it a fancy name. Beautiful, I love it. And um, again, that cost very little money, sort of four hundred quid mm. and a bit of labour to create something magic. A lot of this stuff is not necessarily hard; just takes a bit of thought. Is it on that? Is it you know with your putting your kind of legal sort of head back on? Is a lot of is that I guess you must see in um, in your legal work, particularly when you're looking at the rights of nature stuff, that you can, you can see where the solutions, you know, where you can probably tackle a lot of this stuff, like you say, like you're doing here. But I guess you also see how the legal system makes a lot of this quite simple stuff you know, unnecessary complex in terms of decision making that, you know, it either is going to destroy nature or improve it. I guess there must be a lot of complex law, which actually as you can see, is actually quite simple to sort out on the ground. Is that, is that right to say yeah, something? Yeah, it definitely is. And one of the things that has helped this project a lot is a kind of um, flippant attitude towards unnecessary bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much into the idea of as long as you're doing something positive mm. to plant and be damned almost. I mean, technically, I don't own that land. We planted trees on it. I didn't ask the landowner's permission. Technically, I guess planting trees could be criminal damage, but they would be really stupid to try and do that, right? Because it would look ridiculous. I mean, it would be insane that, you, like you say, you can, you can pollute the hell out of the river with plastic and shit, but right. you can't plant trees. Right. <laughs> be a- and I've been planting trees in the roading, willows, um, over the last week. There's a load of sheep piling in the town centre. You know, I told you we love this. Humans love this kind of creating no edgelands so it's a harsh sheet piling and the only option to soften that and bring it back for wildlife would normally be costing millions to set the sheet piling back but I've taken massive cuttings of willows sort of three four meters in length and gone down in my raft and planted about 30 of them alongside the sheet piling that probably should need environment agency permission but I'm damned if I'm asking them for it because if they try and prosecute me for planting trees whilst letting Thames water pollute the river they'll look ridiculous and they know that but it's something you're speaking to here generally, which feels like a, a thing that we kind of need to be opening up all over the place, which is if we just rely on the current sort of structures and systems to sort of tackle all these problems, which we know they can't because they're systemic and they're complex and whatever. But also the idea that, you know, again, we're not if we're not allowing places and people and communities to start really creating kind of understanding what, what is it we want to happen here. And just like you say, having simpler frameworks which are just common sense for a sort of a regenerative future versus common sense for a sort of industrial future Mm. it just feels like this stuff has to start accelerating everywhere because if we rely on these you know on these these you know the, the, the 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 i guess the existing legal systems for all of this kind of shift which is like you say it's just how do we bring life back to here um are you sensing like Again, from a sort of legal perspective, you seeing that this, you know, the work you're doing, Lawyers for Nature, you seeing this, this shift in law coming or not? (laughs) Um, I'm seeing it coming politically and activist wise, but not legally. Uh, The law is really wedded to property rights. It loves property. It's basically the reason it was set up. It's raison d'etre is to protect property rights. And it will protect property rights in favour in favour of almost anything else, including human life. You know, um, it it really it was really obsessed by property rights. So the problem is, is nature is often at odds with those, and the protections for nature 
almost always take second place to property. And there needs to be a fundamental shift. And yet property can't exist without healthy, natural context around it, right? Right. But that, this is the problem we face. And I mean, I'm also a climate activist as well. Yeah. And I see that in the legal profession, you know, of we need to protect the rule of law and um, property rights. It's like none of that's going to exist if we allow the climate crisis to, mm. to spiral out of control as it is. But I think lawyers are often very smart in their specific area, but very bad at systemic imaginative thinking. Mm. Um, I'm often surprised by this because I'm like mm, senior lawyers and judges are far more intelligent than me and they can read so why they haven't read the reports about climate change and tried to do anything about it I don't know Um, and the only thing I can think of is that yeah it's it's a certain type of intelligence that's very intelligent within its own bubble but completely unable to think outside of that and to think creatively a lot of the time Mm. And that, that feels like a sort of, again, sort of ecological intelligence or, you know, systemic intelligence, all these kind of things is, a, again, is, a, you know, the lacking in our culture is because we haven't, obviously, we haven't, you know, we've, we don't have, we're not uh, educated or pulled through systems that are, that are encouraging that kind of intelligence to, to be developed in us. But, uh, you know, I think humans, ha- you know, we have it in us, right? It's there. <laughs> we have it in us as children. It's there. But it, it's somehow in this sort of, you know, in the, in the, in this kind of, you know industrial sort of command and control sort of world it's kind you know we get that sense of um of power i guess of you know over, over these systems almost and i guess the structures the legal structures and the systems are still in that kind of that way of thinking yeah. um because you had it's very of, much so in, in in the old paradigm way yeah, of thinking and yeah. i i don't quite know how to bring them out of it because the people leading that system more than almost any other profession are old mm. and of a certain mindset mm. um and very invested in that current in that system mm. they are the elite and they won't want to change the system because it ultimately the moment empowers them because i guess you're you know you talked about you mentioned the climate work and i think it was last couple of weeks i was seeing that some of the you know some of the um Interlake Britain and stop oil protesters. I think, who would, I, th- I think it was something like. I mean, you'll know this, but it was. Is it the fact that they were they were being um, basically banned from actually telling the jury why yeah, yeah. why they so were I've, doing I've, this? I've, I, I know quite a lot about this because I've right. been involved in this activist wise. Yeah, right. So I mean, could you just talk? Because that seems just like that seems really disturbingly dangerous. This kind of stuff that's going on. Yeah, and, and what it is, um, we're left with jury trial is something which if they tried to introduce it today would never happen <laughs> they would right. never give ordinary people such power over the over the justice system mm. um so obviously you probably know how jury trial works but something that people don't often know is there was a case in 1670 called bushel's case where um a group of um I think Quaker preachers were preaching on the street, which at the time was illegal because only the C of E could preach, Church of England could preach. And they were arrested. And in law, they were clearly guilty of the crime. But the jury didn't want to convict them because they felt that crime shouldn't exist. And the jury basically returned, refused to return a verdict of guilty. And the judge locked the jury up in prison until they came back with the right verdict. And Bushel's case was, a, the, was the foreman of the jury basically did a, an action for habeas corpus to say... 
release me because I, I'm being unjustly imprisoned because I'm a jury member and I'm free to return that verdict and the, and the courts agree with them. And from then on, it has been a, a, a rule in our legal system that juries are free to acquit on their conscience. They don't have to justify that decision to anyone and it's not appealable. Now, it doesn't sound that big, but actually, when you think of the impact that rule potentially has, it's massive. It basically gives ordinary people a veto over any criminal law. And so, for instance, it was actually one of the reasons that we, all the people keep harking on about the death penalty, the death penalty is very unlikely to come back because if it did, loads of juries just wouldn't convict people of murder because they wouldn't want people yeah. to be executed. And in climate terms, it has a very interesting um, end result, which is if enough people decide that they will not convict for people damaging the properties of oil companies, that property becomes basically unprotectable by the state. Because every time someone smashes a shell petrol pump, if a jury refuses to convict them, then they, people get away with it. Yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. And, and I think we are rapidly heading to an inflection point where people realise that the actions of the fossil fuel companies are so bad and with such negative consequences for us all that they are reluctant to convict people of, of such crimes. Yeah. And we, were, we saw a number of, over the last couple of years, we've seen a number of cases of um, climate protesters being let off by juries and basically the judiciary is now scared. Yeah. And their options are to either try and stop this happening, which is what they've been doing in Insulate Britain cases, or to abolish trial by jury. And so what, what they've done, a judge called Silas Reed in the Insulate Britain case has made a ruling that people are not allowed to refer to climate change or the motivation for carrying out these protests. And if they do, if they mention climate change in court, he will find them in contempt. And so how, on, how's on, that, on, and how is that possible? Because surely that's the whole... I mean, that's why they're there, right? I mean, they're, that's like going into somewhere and, I guess, and defending yourself and not being able to mention... Their, their, their reasoning, the legal reasoning is, is that the judge gets to decide the law and the jury gets to decide the fact. The judge has determined that climate change cannot be a defence for these actions because that's the law. And therefore, under his case management powers, he will forbid people mentioning something that is not relevant. But it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> and to most people, it would look very unfair to say you can't even mention the reason yeah. that you didn't act in case the jury decide, actually, we're not going to convict for that. Mm. Um, and so on Friday, I was in court when two Insulate Britain protesters were sent to prison for seven weeks, not, not for the protest, not for sitting on the road, for mentioning climate change in their trial. As the and reason I, why they were yeah. doing this. Yeah, and I think that's an outrageous attempt by the judge to impinge upon one of our most um, important and ancient liberties. One thing I do want to mention, there's a really important way that ordinary people can push back on this action by the judiciary. Tell, remember yourself and tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody you know, if you are on a jury that is trying someone for a, a climate-related protest, the judge may well have said to them in private they cannot mention the motivation for it in front of the jury, right? But if you are on a climate change protest case or any case involving peaceful climate activists, you have a right to acquit them for on your conscience. You do not have to justify that and you will never be asked your reasonings and it cannot be appealed. You have the power to find them not guilty.
listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Burgess. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, I've, I've been saying it everywhere. And to be honest, most, most of the time when people talk about legal loopholes or this, this, this ancient legal thing that you should know about, it's bollocks. Yeah. But actually, this one really exists. There is an ancient rule that people can equip for whatever reason they choose. Yeah. And actually, it's a really important way that ordinary people hmm. can push back upon um, the criminalization of climate protest yeah and it and it's making me think you know where we started the conversation around sacredness you know and, and this whole idea that as more people start to maybe re-entangle themselves back into the, or starting to understand the sacredness of this living world of the thing we call nature that's you know part of this all the you know the climate ecological breakdowns that we're sort of living through at the moment i guess the more that people under, are making that connection understanding the more these types of, of uh, uh, legal uh, situation, you know what I mean, where where actually more people understand that this is this is fundamental to 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 equip people to to to, to understand that their reasoning is is about all of us. It's about it's about the future. It's about now. It's about next generations. It's about the more than human. It's all of this. You know, it's a much more expansive view of, and I think that's where the, where we struggle in the media and stuff, is it? Because it's always sort of like, you know, the, the you know the protesters and, you know, whatever they call it, like damaging our way of life, you know, and it's like this kind of like destructive sort of way of modernity that's kind of like causing so much problems under the surface, and the people that are, I guess already putting themselves on the front line. They're coming from actually a sacred place in many ways, I guess, is what I'm rambling mm. on about. I think also there's a, uh, I'm trying to explain this in a way that's not too legal, technical. But to me, most of the problems or many of the problems in the way that our legal system is reacting to the climate crisis and indeed to the destruction of nature and the ecological crises is issues over what's called causation. So in law, there's this concept of causation that um, you have to prove that um, there's a connection between A and B. So, um, and our legal system is, is many hundreds of years old in how it bases causation. But of course, back in the 17th century, causation was usually very simple because the technology at the time meant that actually it's very hard to impact things that are really far away from you. So if I punch you, um, then that, there's clear causation between my punch and your injury, right? Mm -hmm. And we even had, up until the 1990s, I think, this thing called the year-in-a-day rule, which um, originated in uh, many hundreds of years ago, that basically said if you hurt someone, they'd have to die within a year or in a day for you to be guilty of their murder, because otherwise the causation was too far. And it was abolished in the 90s, because we then had the technology around life support machines. So someone would stab someone, they'd be on a life support machine for two years, and they wouldn't be guilty of murder. Right. Right. Now, how does that relate to climate change? Well, of course, back in the day, to, to damage something, you usually had to be quite close to it. You know, you would your embankment would collapse and it would flood your neighbour's property, or you would put something in the water and it would go downstream and, and damage your neighbour's drinking water. But now we have the power to cause damage to things both very far away from us in space, in geography terms. Your emissions here will damage someone in, um, on a small island state or somewhere in South Saharan Africa. And also to damage things temporally. Your emissions now is going to harm someone 100 years in the future. And the law just ha 
cannot keep up with that yeah. in causation terms. And so in criminal defences, there are defences of necessity. If you break down a door to go into a burning building and rescue someone, that's not criminal damage, even though smashing someone's door is normally criminal damage, right? But if you smash the door of the Shell headquarters to... Uh, to stop the damage from climate change that is going to be caused by them, the law doesn't recognise that necessity defence because the, the the causation between you smashing that door and stopping climate change is, is not seen as sufficiently close in law. Mm. And almost all of the problems we see, I think, in law and its reactions to the climate crisis come down to that issue of causation. Can you see... I don't know if that's too legal technical. No, no, it's, no, it's, and it's, no it's absolutely fascinating. I guess... No, I was interested because I saw you know you you had on um, I think this this thing which you was, I think it's on your site. But you say shaking up what it means to be a lawyer in a time of environmental crisis, and it what's that really spoke to me because it's something I you know, a lot with this podcast. You know, we have this 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 mantra of becoming crew, and it's just you know we're we're all being called to sort of step in and participate in whatever ways we can. And for me, I think in every in every profession or any role that we all have. I think we're being called to like to, to shake up that exactly to shake up what it means to be practicing this thing in a time like this and uh, and so do you I mean are you are you a are you a quite a rare breed in the legal system <laughs> <laughs> is, is there is there is there sort of like you know is there a kind of There's like I guess because the young I'm imagining the younger uh, coming in the younger crews must I would imagine a, a, there must be more more understanding of the the shit we're in <laughs> yeah I think I am reasonably unusual as a as a practicing barrister um which is a shame I wish more lawyers thought in a more creative way I think it's because of the way that law has been has become ossified in this country where it's seen now just as a this is a set of rules written and this is how you interpret them to get the best result for your client who's usually going to be usually wealthy or powerful because they're the ones who have the money to pay for you which is a lot of the way the legal profession is now coming down to whereas actually I think the role of lawyer should was should be and I think one day again will be a much wider role I think we're storytellers. We help tell stories about how people should relate to each other and relate to the earth. Um, I think we have a, a, a role as sort of community leaders and also of closer to a kind of this sort of like a community leader role that is often played uh, uh, done by priests now. You know, that kind of, that role of stewarding the community, of resolving and arbitrating disputes, of working out what the community's relationship with the natural environment should be so we don't over-exploit and damage it. All of these things. And yet, all we're left with is this very narrow role of interpreting a set of rules to the best advantage of your often wealthy clients. And and therefore, because of that narrow conception of the role of lawyer, the people who have the wider conception don't even go into law anymore because it's seen as quite justifiably quite boring. Hmm. I was um, there's a it's making me think there's a there's a there's a, there's a phrase we've been uh, exploring in our becoming crew. Right? It's like what what would you be doing if responsibility to life on Earth was how we measured success? Um, you know, as a sort of like can we imagine a sort of a time where that was the sort of right. you know what I mean yeah. and, uh, 
and 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 it's so bad in the legal profession that um being called an activist lawyer is actually a pejorative right <laughs> <laughs> honestly they literally people other other barristers look down on me because i do work that i care about not work that makes me loads of money yeah. like in what other profession is it a point of pride that you're a um, greedy gun for hire that you'll only act for people who can pay you money in causes you don't give a moral toss about yeah. like in what other profession is that a badge of pride yeah it's, it's, it's mad yeah and, I think there um, probably are a few more professions though. sorry I think there probably are a few more professions <laughs> well they're the, the professions where they do that yeah. but not whether it's actually a form of pride I get, I get. I that they do yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that we're effectively kind of you know cabs for hire and we just do whoever pays us the most. We do it without any care for the actual cause behind it. Yeah. And actually, I've had um, well, I've, I've had other lawyers actually put my Twitter profile in evidence to evidence the fact that I was an activist lawyer as a way of discrediting me, which I find truly interesting. And also very... Um, how to put it? I feel quite sorry for them as a person, really, that 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 could actually be seen as a negative thing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's reminding me a little bit as you're talking of this, um, I think this is a jo- Joanna Macy phrase, but she has this question again, which we work with a lot in our thing, which is what happens through you? It's this idea that, you know, we had this kind of, you know, we, we have a, in this culture, have had this sort of session of like, you know, what do you do, you know, and like what, what do you get? And, you know, um, but this idea of what happens through us, because obviously, in the living world there is you know everything is something is happening through everything that's sort of connecting to something else but i i think it's a really interesting question to sort of explore with you know with people with professionals whatever because actually when you start to unpick like what what actually does happen through me you know whether like you say whether it's as you're speaking to you know some of some of the 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 lawyers that you come across like what is actually happening through that work there is more exploitation more do you know what I mean? More, mm. more, more injustice, whatever, because you're protecting that person. I think it's a really interesting question for these times. I don't know, don't know if it brought anything up for you, but just made me think of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in the fact that it feels like my most important role in life is as a guardian of this river, and yet it's the role that's not actually paid or, or respected by society. Yeah. And it's quite a lawyery role in some ways, right? You know, like this river needs someone who, when someone dumps out of rubbish in it, can investigate that and can put together a case to say why that's wrong and to check the law for instance about sewage overspills but also check when that's happening evidence a case and get Thames Water to stop doing that you know they're all quite lawyery roles and this river needs guardianship it desperately needs it and here I am doing it in my spare time because I have to go and make ends meet by being a, a barrister for companies a lot of the time in my you know yeah, in my in my real job, as it were. Um, what would you? What would you? If you if you could, would this be what you would put all your time into? Because also, it strikes me as you do. I mean, I I reached out. I remember I had a quick exchange with you like ten days ago, and you were up a tree. Currently, <laughs> surrounded by police. <laughs> and uh, I can explain about that in a second. Yeah, explain about that. But I'm like, do you know what I mean? It's, and I and I look at someone you see your you know your Twitter feed. And, you know, you it seems like you have so much that you are you're giving so much to this earth i i get a sense of but also supporting people who are in this as well as uh, nature as well as this river i mean walking down here with you this afternoon and seeing what you're doing down here i mean you you know you you are part of this river it's it's really sort of it's extraordinary but but i but it seems like i say you're giving a lot in lots of other places so back to that idea you know how is it is it nest is it actually 
you know, although you're being pulled into legal cases, I guess there's something about, like you said before, maybe the micro and the macro having this kind of like being in and amongst these mm. different le- le- levels and layers of the system feels quite integral as well. Mm. I guess is that question basically what would you do if you didn't have to earn money? Yeah, is that exactly. is that is that, that the one. question? That one. Sorry. <laughs> no, you because know, I do think. Well, yeah, well, maybe, but I do think it does seem to strike me as well that there's there is a there's something very, you know, you have this very, you know, you're, it seems like there's a spontane spontaneity about your work. So, particularly, I say you you should talk about that being up a tree, surrounded by please, because that struck me as one of those situations. Exactly. It actually links in quite nicely to your question. Okay. Go on. Yeah, it's, it's a perfect. It's, you didn't know it, but you you've teed up a perfect <laughs> response. I've done I've done it before. <laughs> um, so basically, I a lot of the nature protection work I do just isn't paid because a lot of it's local groups that are protecting nature in their spare time and don't really don't really have any money to, to pay people um so i keep myself going by doing housing and employment law mostly um, which i also love you know it's good I, it's i always act only for tenants and for employees generally um so i'm keeping people in their homes and helping them have secure healthy homes and also stopping people getting sacked unfairly but my passion is for protecting nature but that's often really hard to make make it pay. And to link it back into the tree thing, I was actually in a five-day employment tribunal case um, to make to help my clients, but also try and make some money. And that uh, settled on Monday afternoon. It was due to finish on the Tuesday, and I settled it Monday afternoon through some aggressive cross-examination of the opposing witness. And then I had a day free, so I was able to go down to Wellingborough, where there was a tree campaign going on, and present the advice I've written for them for free in person. And then when the police ignored that advice and, and went to arrest people for standing under the trees, I decided to climb the tree to stop it being taken down and then spent the whole day up the tree and then wrote a Twitter thread about it, which went yeah, <laughs> around went crazy. the world, I read it. got I read it. three million views. And then the council caught, uh, suspended the felling and it looks like they're, they're going to be doing a lot more local campaigns to save those trees. So I guess, the interesting thing there is I had luckily had that spare day because I managed to settle my case, but had I not been able to, then that whole thing wouldn't have happened. So it's because of the nature of this, it's often quite ad hoc in what you can do in protecting nature through the law because it's not paid. But it's only not paid because we're not recognising the true benefits that nature brings to us. Yeah, right. it's, it's, it's constant economic exploitation of nature. You know, the, the river roading could, should have a team of 20, 30 people easily just looking out for its interest, checking for sewage bills, talking about planning applications that come in in relation to the river, planting trees, taking rubbish out, engaging with local groups, all these things that me and a few other people are doing in our spare time, there should be a whole team of people. And if those who were using the river were paying even a fraction of what the worth they're getting from it, that, that could easily be funded. But all these companies are expropriating the river for nothing and then leaving those who are trying to protect the river to work for free in our spare time on a shoestring. Yeah. And, and the same with, with all of, you know, trees bring so, so much benefit to local communities, but that benefit is not ever properly seen in economic terms. And therefore, those trying to protect trees are doing so often in their spare time at great personal cost. And it's not like this everywhere, is it? I mean, I get the, I get the sense with, with trees particularly. I mean, I, you know, my understanding of, um, you know, our evolution, is, is our evolution, you know, the humans are the babies, the trees and the plants were here way before us. They're the sort of like, in, in many sort of indigenous cultures, the elders and the intelligence. But we just have none of that here, do we? It's like a sort of, it's just this idea of, 
the idea that you know that these that, that there is i guess it back to the sacredness question again isn't it it's just it's just they're seen as things that you can just i think take i out. think i think we do have it i just don't think it's currently represented in our political economic and, and legal systems yeah. actually i think love of nature and love of trees is something that is actually very deep in a lot of people and it's something that often crosses political boundaries and actually i think could be a crucial way of bringing people together who are divided over culture wars but it also like i've i found in wellingborough for instance you know going up that tree i only got about i'd say 0.1 percent of comments were negative like get a job get that out of that yeah. tree you twat that kind of stuff most of them were really positive and and that that goes across business advisor i got a positive write-up in the daily mail you know that doesn't normally happen and i think in cases where you see trees being threatened like in sheffield yeah people of all different kinds rose up and refused to accept it and i think it speaks to a very deep love and connection that people have particularly towards trees and their their willingness to fight for it mm. but that is just currently not representing our political system but i think could be and i think also could be a very fertile ground for that yeah yeah and probably involves taking politicians and business people and stuff and getting them around, getting them out into the getting out to the woods and, and the rivers to kind of like connect with this stuff more deeply right i think that's exactly. part of what's missing from all of this yeah is that we're making laws and decisions and stuff in abstract disconnected places of power where you know we're not really getting back to the cause causation i guess in some way of what actually happens when we're i think yeah. i think it's also yeah i agree and i think it's also um incumbent particularly upon progressive people to really think about the way that they're communicating this love of nature to everyone i as being someone who's reasonably left-wing and progressive has always have always been against kind of patriotism and this kind of que- monarchy flag and army kind of notion of what it means to love your country so i was kind of against patriotism but i actually realize now that i really love these lands and i really love the nature in these lands and i'm deeply connected to these lands and to the people and nature that inhabit them and that is that is patriotism you know I, i i love my country i don't i don't necessarily love my government or the state that currently ministers this yeah. this place but i love this country i love these lands i love its rivers i love its nature and i love the people i get to share these islands with and if we can make that idea and make it open and welcoming so it's not about it's not about um whether you were born here it's not about your bloodline it's about do you do you connect with this place do you also love this place turning indigeneity from a, a noun into a verb i guess indigeneity in the uk is justifiably often used in a bad in a bad way you know in a, in a quite a racist right wing way um but what if we were to instead define it as a as a way of being here as a process so no matter where you're from no matter where you were born and what your passport says do you love these lands do you connect with them and do you wish to protect them that for me is the form of indigeneity and and of a form of patriotism that i th- i agree with or feel yeah and it and it it's beautiful and it also just makes me think again about how you know how for that part of that is then back we're back to access and opening up and connection because creating that sense of relationship that deeper relationship with the landscapes in the place you call home requires you to be able to 
to, to touch and feel and sense and experience and connect with life. And again, so therefore the work like you're doing here, trying to open these places back up, trying to help people, you know, feel their way back into this indigeneity because mm. that's that feels what's that where we're this disconnection that's happened over the decades of, of of you know we've been removed from these lands in I some think, ways i think people should start challenging politicians when we have here all this kind of guff about loving your country <laughs> which both labor and the conservatives say now it's like it's it's de rigueur you know this kind of stick a flag behind you right. every time you do an interview and you must everyone must love this country it's like what do you mean by that yeah right um, what what do you mean by loving this country? How c- how can people love a country where they're excluded from ninety two percent of the land right. and ninety seven percent of the rivers? And how can you say that you love this country when you allow water companies to pour shit into its rivers for profit, to make billions of profit? How can you say you love this country when you allow its most ancient and precious trees to be destroyed? How can you say you love this country when you're allowing valuable habitat across the country to be destroyed all these kind of things and to me i guess i feel i used to feel like i I didn't love this country but actually i I now realize i do and i'm demonstrating that love in the work that i do here yeah every every tree i plant is a demonstration of my love for these lands every bit of litter i take out is a demonstration of my love for this river and that to me feels more real than a a love based on a bit of a fiction, which is what a lot of politicians seem to base theirs on. <clears throat> yeah, well, it's a love based on connection and attention and care and uh, community. And it's, yeah, it's beautiful how you're speaking to this. And I think, I think that's the thing. And again, I go back to the, you know, we go back to the complexity of these issues and stuff, but without that connection, without that access, you know ha- that that's essential to create the belonging you know i belong here yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what i mean yeah and like i was um i accidentally got involved in anti-monarchy protest last year <laughs> by uh, holding up a blank sign during the accession of king charles and um <laughs> i was asked then about you know oh, i think i saw that yeah yeah it was, it was a crazy time anyway that that happened yeah. but I, I was asked around this kind of idea of 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 you know is isn't the monarchy something that brings people together and i was like well i'm not sure that it does necessarily and you know i'm not sure that we want to i think that the over concentration on the monarchy is something that unites us actually obscures that which is actually more important and deeper and i said i've looked after oak trees older than the house of saxe Coburg gotha which is the royal family house and i've there are yew trees in these lands which are uh, predate the Norman conquest and indeed the Roman conquest of these lands and have overlooked all of these human comings and goings. And the river Roding has flowed before humans even came to these islands. And that is what I regard as important. That is what I regard as sacred. And that is what I'm here to, to protect and restore and look after because it's far more important and sacred than all of these, frankly, trifling human dynasties and concerns. That was beautiful. I think I think that's I think that's ta- taking taking us to the to some conclusions here. Um, <laughs> no. There's a lot of threads here. I feel no, sorry no, for the listeners. No, there's a lot, it's, it's lot pretty, of random things pretty, that I've thrown into the mix. You're, 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 you know, you're, there's two 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 chaps that are quite divergent in their thinking. So it takes. A, <laughs> but no, it's, it's been amazing. I think there's so much in what you're doing, and I just I guess like um, there's a couple of things. One was like. You know, when you look at here now on, on on the road and where you are, what is the what is this? When you sort of imagine into the future, what do you what are you what are you seeing? What what's what's this kind of future that, for here that you're that's that's alive for you? 
give us a glimpse. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, I believe that this earth is in, in, in a way a kind of Eden and it can can be again. And the, the roading could be a kind of paradise of beautiful nature with water so clear that you can not, and clean that not only can you swim in it, you can actually drink it, you know? And that people could, I don't know, experience it as, as a perfect kind of Eden. Crucially, that's obviously a vision that will take a long time to do and probably won't be fulfilled in my lifetime. But I also really believe in having smaller steps on the way to that vision. So I'm already going to start a swimming club here this year so we can actually swim in the river, check water quality and then swim in the river. And, you know, there's still this horrible motorway right there and all this like rubbish everywhere, but we've planted a load of trees so people can come and sit under a beautiful cherry blossom and listen to the bird song in what is a very built up area of London. Um, even now, the willows that we've planted over the last five years have significantly increased the natural biomass available to insects and therefore birds. So the bird life here, I think, is increasing and will do so ever more, even in the here and now. And I mentioned that plan about reconnecting all these marshes. Well, that's a long-term plan, but even in the here and now, we literally, on Sunday, we took all that rubbish out and planted with those trees. So there'll be a woodland there in two or three years' time that people can go into and get lost in a, a massive willow and uh, wet marsh and bramble and birdsong, even in Zone 4 London next to a railway and a motorway. So it's these big picture visions and ideals of how the future could be if we began to connect with nature and make it sacred again, but with lots of achievable steps that we can do in the here and now to get mm. there. So we're not, we're not waiting for some grand vision. It's something we're starting to walk now and achieve right here, right now. Yeah, and you know, e- even in the midst of all this damage and destruction and ugliness, I still get to live in a tidal marsh surrounded by birdsong in a, a beautiful wild area in London, which feels quite magical. Mm. It's making me think of um, Dougald Hines' book at work in the ruins. I said, "You are, you are, you are really working in the ruins, aren't you?" Great. <laughs> He actually, he signed my copy saying, keep up the good work. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Um, so final thing, right? we, you know, we, we uh, explore this metaphor of, of Spaceship Earth on this podcast and this idea of becoming crew and, um, you know, what that means to step into service in this moment, you know, to start to bring, you know, to, to, to step into service and bring, bring life back. What are, what are some crew missions you might, uh, you oh know, God, how long, how, how long do we have? Yeah, well, you know what I mean? Cause some, well, I guess, I guess there's so many people are frustrated, you know, or wanting to participate and like, you know, what you're doing here obviously is, is amazing. I just guess like, yeah, just give us a sense of like what, what you would encourage listeners to, that they might want to consider if they're thinking about, particularly, I guess, if they're living in cities and places where they see, we often hear people say, you know, there's just no nature where I am and there's this and what, what, what kind of missions would you suggest going on? I think the most important start is to gain an appreciation and love for nature. I have a idea which other people have expressed as well that you will love that which you know and you'll protect that which you love and those things don't need to be forced 
they will flow reasonably automatically. I think right at the start we started talking about why I do all this, and it was quite, I find it quite hard to explain because there wasn't really a specific turning point. It's just I got to know nature and I got to know the river roading, and every day, every passing year, every passing season, as I've got to know it, I just come to love it. And from that, when it's damaged, the desire to protect it, that fierce desire to protect the river I love and the nature I love just flows from that. And so I would say to people, the crucial thing is to just get to know nature near you. There will be somewhere, even if it's a park or a bit of waste ground around here. Also, every single drop of rain that falls to earth falls into a river catchment. Wherever you are now, you are in a river catchment. And find out where that is. And if you're in a city, the the stream nearest to you might be covered over, but that will flow into a river that might still be uncovered or into another bigger river that's uncovered. Get to know it. Find out where you are and start walking it mm. and get to know it. And I think that will usually inculcate a sense of love. And then you'll, you'll start to notice what needs doing to protect your river. You'll see the rubbish, so organise a litter pick to get rid of that rubbish and start campaigning to stop it being put in. Is there a lack of trees along your river, maybe it needs some willow planted along there. Um, do you have, well, I think almost everyone has favourite trees, trees that are just part of their life, that if they came home and find them as a pile of logs, they'd be devastated. So investigate, does your tree have a tree preservation order on it? And if it, if it doesn't, then apply for them from the council, which anyone can do. Find your top 10 favourite trees, check if they're protected, and go and get them protected if not so that you don't come home one day and find something that is so important to you just destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, do, does your river have bad um, sewage problems? Find out where the outfalls are. Start campaigning against the water companies who are polluting them. There are so many things happening on the roading that I only really found out about because of it's a deep knowledge with it. Mm. You know, I was walking along the river with a poet about a month ago and I just happened to go past an outfall at the moment it started spilling raw steaming sewage into the river that had been happening I think for months but I just never never noticed it went on Twitter loads of people got very angry with Thames Water it got sh shared by Fergal Sharkey 80s pop singer turned yeah. river well, river champion a, he is huge isn't he yeah yeah and he, he shared it and yeah. loads of people got angry with Thames Water next day the road was shut off and they were tankering out the sewage so it wasn't going in the river anymore yeah. just from that there's something we can all do and if your river has a friends of group get involved with it maybe radicalise them they need to be a bit more <laughs> radical on the ground if it doesn't have a river group or if your river group is not radicalizable, then yeah. found a radical friends group that acts as a guardian for the river mm. and act as that source of inspiration for others to do things when you start moving towards guardianship and protecting your river treating it as sacred other people will see that and they will follow you but a lot of people just need to see someone else doing it first so be that first mover that person that treats their river as sacred and gets others to act as its guardian by example beautiful Paul thank you so much for uh, giving me a little bit of a, a connection with with the roading and seeing your work and uh, sharing sharing your journey with us it's awesome and uh, you are we're yeah we're, we're, we're lucky to have you on Spaceship Earth thanks, thanks for having me <laughs> go well If you've appreciated listening to this podcast, 
would you consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a rating or review via your podcast provider? It helps more people to find us and we'd be most grateful. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul. If you're inspired by Paul, which I find it hard not to be, um, as he says, become a guardian of your local river or patch of trees. Get out there day in and day out. Begin to know deeply these places, what they might have been in the past, what they could become in the future with our stewarding care and imagination. Um, If you enjoy this podcast, do give us a rating or a review and a share. Honestly, it takes a couple of minutes, really helps other people to find the podcast. And it makes me happy to hear from you. So come on, come and make an old man happy. Give us a review. Um, I'm going to quickly mention uh, a new learning offering uh, from Becoming Crew called The Remix. It's a three-month action learning adventure, which is now open for applications. Applications are coming in. It kicks off early May. It's for anybody who works with story, which is pretty much all of us. Uh, We're going to be exploring the role of stories in these times, especially the stories we tell ourselves about our relationship to the natural living world around us. It's guided uh, by me and my fellow guides, Ever and Mark. It's highly participative action learning. We're going to be manifesting stories through us on the way. There's some amazing guests who will be offering provocation and creative fertilizer as we go, including Finisterre Ambassador Eski Britton, who will help us really deepen our understanding of our relationship with wild waters and the ocean. Um, if you're interested, check it out. All the details, becomingcrew.com forward slash the remix. I'm going to play out with a track and keeping the ocean thread alive. This is a new track by sonic genius composer sound designer and producer cj mirror who often brings his sonic gifts to surfing through amazing audio projects collabs and soundtracks but he's just released a new solo project it's called cj's mirror maze Uh, the track is called self-medicate if you dig it buy it share it get behind it until next time peace and out This podcast is created in service to life, for you. It takes time, funds and energy to make. If you'd like to contribute to the running costs, you can donate the price of a cuppa or a pint. Find the link on our website. This podcast wouldn't exist without the following crew. Charlie Shred, Audio Jedi. Seaman Home Burgess, Engine Room. Willow Burgess, Jingles.